as we consider the same scriptures with a different focus this morning. But before we really get into the study uh, today, I mean, we have some new faces here, been with us a while, and you most likely are not aware of this. Maybe you are, maybe not, but this will be my last Sunday here preaching here at Grace Covenant Church, last time behind this pulpit this year. So they laugh because this joke has been told several times, and so they should have not have laughed and let those of you new, uh, who are new really stew on that for a moment, as some of you had to do last year. So um, yes, this will be our last Sunday this year here at the church. Anyhow, maybe that'll be the last time I use that since everyone's aware of that. (laughs) But it has been an interesting year, has it not? Uh, All kinds of things in many ways. As individuals, as families, as a church, uh, much to give God thanks for him, to him. Um, And it looks like... um, you know, no prophet or son of a prophet, as the saying goes, but it looks like 2024 is going to be quite the doozy in many ways. But we have to remember where our focus is. And our focus ought to be on Jesus Christ, on the Word of God, the local church, and on reaching the lost. God has blessed us this year. A lot of new members who are hungry for the Word of God. Some driving quite a distance to be here, at times more than even once a week. We have been blessed by the giving of his people, uh, financially and in gifts of service. And this has been you people, as the saying is, which has allowed for various projects and necessities to, uh, to come about. I am convinced that the Lord has added to this church a people who want to be here, who are hungry for the word of God, as a result of continuous intercessory prayer. Corporate intercessory prayer. As we have prayed for revival, as we have prayed for people to get saved, as we have prayed to see fruit, And we are seeing fruit, fruit, in my conviction, of Sunday morning prayers, of Wednesday evening prayers of God's people, and other times of prayer as well, for his grace and by his grace and for his glory. We must remember that our focus must not change. We must never focus on numbers or what we can build with our hands or rebuild with our hands, we must stick to the simplicity of the preaching of the Word of God, to prayer, to studying the Word and to living it out, to encouraging the saints, evangelizing the lost. We must rely on His power and plead for more of His strength to live as He has called us to live. He has called us to be not of this world. 
J.C. Ryle says the Christian fight is a good fight. Really good. Truly good. Emphatically good. We see only part of it as yet. We see the struggle, but not the end. We see the campaign, but not the reward. We see the cross, but not the crown. We see a few humble, broken-spirited, penitent, praying people enduring hardships and despised by the world. But we see not the hand of God over them, the face of God smiling on them, the kingdom of glory prepared for them. These things are yet to be revealed. Let us not judge by appearances. There are more good things about the Christian warfare than we see. End quote. Several points for us this morning as we begin in verse 28 of John chapter 19. We're going to be turning to various uh, of the other Gospels and then a brief stop in Psalm 22. First point is the arrogant accusation, the arrogant accusation. Jesus delivered over to Pilate, Jesus standing there before Pilate, verse 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Okay, so the praetorium, an official residence of the Roman governor. We say the governor's mansion. Uh, this is Pilate's place. The Jewish leaders would not enter into this place so that they would not defile themselves and not be able to eat at the Passover. According to Jewish thinking, entering into the dwelling places of Gentiles, would make them unclean. And to do so, to go there, was to defile oneself. And for uh, last, it would last at least seven days and would prevent them from observing the feast for which reason they were there in the first place in that particular time during that week. They approached uh, this place, the Praetorium, early, early part of the day, perhaps 6 to 7 a.m. The Roman courts began early in the day, so they probably were not waking Pilate up uh, to come to hear a trial. The trials would start early in the day anyway, so this was just going about another day. And it is characteristic of John to point out irony. He simply states, states that they were scrupulous about defilement or entering into the praetorium. They would not go into there because they did not want to defile themselves. Yet, they had no problem in an unjust trial and taking part in murder. They had no problem bringing these trumped-up charges. No pun intended. Against the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate is just simply introduced into the scene, into the narrative, as if he was well known. Indeed, he was. He was governor of Judea, appointed by Tiberius Caesar in AD 26 until AD 37. A brutal man in many ways. 
and he had to answer to Caesar, so he did what he had to do to avoid any kind of issues or concerns with Caesar. So he did what he had to do to avoid and suppress any revolts, brutally. He was a politician, a dictator, a judge, and a ruler all wrapped together. He ruled over the Jews with an iron fist in many ways. Yet, at the same time, he was accommodating to the Jewish people. He knew that they could not go into his palace, so what did he do? He came out. It was a time of the Passover. Jerusalem was packed. Tensions were high. And to accommodate a few Jewish laws that would help prevent a riot, Pilate indeed says, okay, and he goes out to meet them. He was loathed by the Jewish people because of who he was and because of what he did. How he handled situations with savage brutality. We can't even comprehend the kind of things that they did. We read about it, the kind of violence and, and brutality that they would um, put upon people. Yet the Jews knew that he could be swayed. The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders knew that he could be bribed, he could be cornered. If it meant to continue his control, and if it meant that he would be in the good graces of Caesar still, he would do what he had to do. He had to be convinced, although, and he was not going to do any favors. So Pilate asks the question, this, this arrogant a- accusation that they bring against Jesus Christ. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation <clears throat> excuse me, do you bring against this man? He was asking for a formal charge. He wasn't saying, okay, what did he do? Why is he here? What charge do you bring against this man? And this would begin uh, the judicial proceedings. This did not mean that Pilate did not know what they were up to. Indeed, he did. Matthew 27, verse 18. For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. And we know that in John chapter 18, verse Uh, 3 and and 12, that Roman soldiers were used at the arrest. So we can use our sanctified imagination and say, okay, then the Roman soldiers were part of this arrest. Surely someone let Pilate know something of what was going on. He knew about this. Perhaps some of the soldiers told him about what happened there, the details. So for the Jewish leaders, the expectation is that Pilate would swiftly act in judgment and agree and confirm with them on having Jesus being crucified. But it didn't go that way. And we see three times that Pilate, who represents the world and the evils of the world, says, I find no, nothing wrong in this man. I find he has done nothing wrong. I find no guilt in him. That's what he says. Three times. I find no guilt in him. Uh, D.A. Carson says this. The fact that Pilate had sufficiently agreed with their legal briefs to sanction sending a detachment of troops 
had doubtless encouraged them to think that he would ratify the proceedings of the Sanhedrin and get on to other business. To find him opening up what was in fact a new trial made them sullen. Hence their terse remark, the course of this subsequent interrogation, shows that whether at this point or earlier in their legal briefs, the Jews had cast their case in political categories that Pilate would understand, even though the categories that upset them the most were theological. That's why he says, take them yourselves and judge him by your own law. And we see in verse 33, their response, or actually not verse 33, verse 30 and 31, which we'll get to in a moment. But the Jewish leaders did not have a charge that would stick in the court of Roman law. They knew it. So they shrewdly and cunningly used a general description in their reply. Again, Pilate says, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer or a criminal, we would not have delivered him to you. So they don't give anything specific that he has done in this particular point in time. We'll look at Matthew, or, or Luke rather, I believe it is, and we'll see exactly what they said. But this man, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't be here, we would not bring him before you. This is not specifying what they are accusing Jesus of doing. This is an assault on his character. The implication is, from the Jewish leaders to Pilate, just trust us. Just trust us. If he wasn't a criminal, he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't even have brought him here to you. Just here he is, and you need to get on with this. They had Pilate's cooperation in the arrest. Surely, it would be an open and shut case but not so fast. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. So he's saying, we have a law, you all have a law, take him, judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, of course, the Jews in the Old Testament did have the right to put people to death. But with Roman control and with Pilate ruling with an iron fist, they did not have that right to do such a thing. Only the Romans did. Capital punishment had been taken over by the Romans. And this indeed was to fulfill and did fulfill what was said in the Old Testament in Psalm 22, we don't even have to go there, but this morning, a thousand years before the crucifixion even took place, David, in the Old Testament in Psalm 22, uh, mentions how his hands were, were pierced. I'll just read it for us. Because we're not going to be there too long. Psalm 22, verse 15 through 18, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the, in the dust of death. 
For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And this was approximately a thousand years before Jesus was born, before Jesus came to this earth. The crucifixion was not even invented yet. And when he, David talks about dogs have surrounded him, those are Gentiles and thieves. And Jesus says in John 12, verse 32 and 34, For if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He was speaking of his crucifixion. Verse 33 tells us he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was going to die. And the crowd answered him in chapter 12, verse 34. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus says to them for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. So as we go back to chapter 18, the, the Jews demanded a death by a crucifixion. The Old Testament, before crucifixion was even invented, spoke of crucifixion. Psalm 22, just briefly to, to explain that. Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Caiaphas would view this, the crucifixion, Jesus becoming a curse to discredit Jesus. That is the way he must die. So he would be a curse. It would fulfill what, what is said in the Old Testament. It would be what Jesus said in chapter 12. And we also see it as, we know it as John saw it, as the way Christ would take away our sin. Galatians 3 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So we have this arrogant accusation, and then we have an inquisitive interrogation. Inquisitive interrogation, verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? How did he ask this question? There's many ways. You could put an emphasis on any word there. You've seen those kind of sentences before. Well, put the, put the emphasis on the first word or the second word, the third word, fourth word, fifth word. It's very um, applicable in memorizing Scripture as well. You put the emphasis on one of the words there, but then sometimes when you look at context or you look in the Greek, you see that there is an emphasis on a specific word. In Luke 23, verse 2 and 3, tells us something. You can turn there if you'd like. 23, verse 2 and 3. I'll read verse 1 to get the context for us. This is after the Jesus was before the Sanhedrin. They brought him to Pilate. We're just going to look at these few verses to help us understand in John as well. 
because we see this in Matthew and we see this in Mark. But here we are in Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asks him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And then he goes on to say, as Jesus answers, I find no guilt in him. Pilate's opening question is is present in all four of the Gospels. Are you the king of the Jews? And in all four Gospels, the word you is emphatic. Are you a king? In other words, as, as, as you, a king? Come on. Like that, you? You're a king? That's, that's the emphasis. Are you a king? One glance, says Leon Morris, at the, his prisoner, at Pilate's prisoner, was enough for him to discern that it was a fantastic thing to see Jesus in this role. Hence his incredulous question. Are you a king? This question, with this question, an interesting interaction takes place between Jesus and Pilate. We would ask, were they speaking in Aramaic or Greek? Would Pilate even know Aramaic? They loathed the Jews, the Jews loathed them. Was there an interpreter present for Pilate? Likely the interaction took place in Greek. Either way, it took place, this inquisitive interrogation. Look at verse 34. With this question, Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answers, verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? The Lord, Jesus, is interested to know whether this is Pilate's own line of questioning or whether he has been coached by others. Listen to Leon Morris again. He says, If Pilate asked this of himself, the question would have meant, Art thou a political king conspiring against Caesar? Okay, so that would lead to, to an answer that Pilate could be looking for. But if he had asked it of Caiaphas, Prompting it would have meant, Art thou the messianic king of Israel? Well, the answer to the first question would have been no. The answer to the second question is yes. The question evokes a contemptuous response. I am not a Jew, am I? Pilate cannot be expected to know about things of this kind from his own knowledge. The initiative came from, quote unquote, you people or your people. And from this nation, the chief priests are especially singled out for notice. So Pilate inquires what Jesus has done. That, for Pilate, is the most important thing. What have you done? He's not prepared to accept the accusation of the chief priests at its face value. But something lies behind all of this. What is it? Jesus has done something to arouse the hostility of the chief priests. Pilate wishes to drag this out into the open 
in order to see whether or not it is something that offends Roman law. So Pilate is there. Jesus is there. He's asking Jesus' question. He gets a response from Jesus, and he, uh, Pilate responds, I'm not a Jew, am I? He wants to know if Jesus has offended Roman law. If so, okay, I get it. I understand. We'll take you. But if it's something that you've done to the Jews, then you, you judge him by your own law. Third point, he is the king of all kings. He is indeed the king of all kings. Jesus answers him in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus is saying, I have a kingdom, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he repeats, my kingdom is not of this realm. He points out, the Lord points out, if it was an earthly kingdom, then his soldiers would be fighting for him. There would be no way he would be in this position that he was in if it was an earthly, worldly kingdom. The charges that the Jews were accusing him of is further shown in its absurdity. The one accused of being the king of the Jews is handed over by the Jews. We have touched on the two kingdoms a few times recently. And we recall in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus referred to a kingdom being divided against itself. And it will be unable to stand. A spiritual kingdom founded on hate, pride, jealousy, and cunningness. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Jesus are in complete opposition to one another. It is really the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. As I mentioned last sermon, the kingdom of heaven, which is Christ's kingdom, overrules the kingdom of this world. When someone would come have a disposition, okay, great, it's a heavenly kingdom, that doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm on earth. Oh, yes, it does. Because his kingdom uh, over, is overlaps and overrules the kingdom of this world. James Boyce points out that the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom overlap at some points, but not here. The same person may be in both worlds. Well, let's not get confused here. An emperor may also be a Christian. He's functioning in the world in a position put there by the Lord, and he can also be a Christian. We see this all the time. If you work in an environment, uh, all of you who, who work, you work in the world, and you're a Christian. If indeed you know Christ. In some areas, they have corresponding concerns, but they are nevertheless different kingdoms and are entered into it differently. How does one enter to the kingdom of the world? We may ask. Well, if you ever get one of those letters, maybe it's uh, 
the class action lawsuit or maybe you have a health care thing and there's all these plans and you have to choose one or the class action thing and it says if you if nothing you want part of this you can opt out do nothing or the health care things you got five to choose from you want to keep your same one do nothing you want to enter into the stay into the kingdom of this world and go to hell when you die do nothing do nothing at all You've already entered in it. You're in it if you do not know Christ. And there's only one way out of it. And that is to enter through the narrow gate. The Sermon on the Mount tells us, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in the spirit takes the, is the opposite of being rich in pride. No one who is full of pride will enter into the kingdom of heaven. You must humble yourself before Jesus Christ. Bow before his lordship and his kingship. Poor in spirit means to be humble. It is the opposite of prideful as we know. To be humble before Christ is to pray as it were, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the person who enters into the kingdom of God. If you're still in the kingdom of this world and have not entered into the kingdom of God, do nothing and you will die and you will perish and you will go to hell and God will be glorified in it. Or embrace his loving call to bow the knee to him now. Pilate said to him, So you are a king, verse 37. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Another interesting point here to consider is when Jesus says to Pilate, when he answers to Pilate, he is saying, you said it, Pilate. You say, Pilate, I am king. In the ESV, in Matthew 27, 11, ESV, the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Jesus is not negating Pilate's words, obviously, He is pointing out that Pilate is affirming a fact. You've said it, Pilate. Then Jesus proceeds to tell Pilate why he came here. For this I have been born. I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. No one else has that authority to say that. You know the saying sometimes, I was born for this moment. No, you weren't. Or no, they weren't. I was born to do this. No, you weren't. You were born to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And to submit your life to Him. 
No one has the authority to say, I was born for this and I came to the world for this other than Jesus Christ for such a purpose as Jesus has come. He has come to testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears his words. And evidence that you have and are hearers of the truth is that you are obeying the truth. If you're not living for Jesus Christ, but you say, yes, I have heard his word, and you're not living for him, you've got earplugs in, you're doing your own thing, and you're not following him. Hearing and obeying. Only a sheep hears the voice of the shepherd, listens to the shepherd, and obeys and follows the shepherd. And we will know them by their fruits. And lip service will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. Jesus indeed was born for this. It is why he came into the world. We find similar statements in scripture. The fact that Jesus has come into the world and that he has, was sent into this world is found in numerous texts. I'll just read these for you. John 6.14 Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. In chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may become blind. And remember Martha, she says of him in chapter 11, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And again, as Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 28, I come forth from the Father and I've come into the world and I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. Paul says of Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. Jesus is a king of a spiritual kingdom. Remember our last study together. He was born a king. He lived and died a king. He reigns now and forever as king, and he will return as king. King of the spiritual kingdom. He came into this world to testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. And follows him, not hear his voice and do my own thing. No, hears his voice and follows him. Just as Jesus is not of this world, those who hear his voice are not of this world. Chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We talk about New Year's resolutions, and some can be good, and most of us fail at them anyway. It's good to be general instead of very specific in New Year's resolutions. But as we think and comprehend things in the new year, not resolution, uh, New Year's resolutions, but resolutions to follow Christ and nearer to Christ and re be reminded that, God, I need to be reminded I am not of this world, and help me to live like it. 
no foot in one kingdom and other foot in the other kingdom. Help me to live as you have called me to live in the world, but not of the world. Fourthly, the triumph of the truth. The triumph of the truth. Verse 38. Jesus made the statement, verse 37, For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. It's a great question. What is truth? But we can tell by his actions that Pilate wasn't sitting down and saying, okay, what is truth? Please tell me. It's a great question if it's a genuine question. Hard to imagine Pilate being genuine in this question. He didn't even wait for Jesus to answer. In a cynical way, what is truth? See? (laughs) Turn around. Walk out. Pilate was being dismissive. It was a way to end the conversation. He found out all he needed. Jesus was no political revolutionary. He posed no threat to Pilate or to Rome. So what was Pilate ready to do? He was going to release Jesus. He was going to release Jesus. He goes outside and addresses the crowd. He says three times here in verse 38. When he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. And in 19, verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And verse 6, so that the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is fascinating because Pilate, who symbolically represents the world, finds no fault in Jesus Christ. And the religious leaders who had the text who knew the word of God were falsely accusing Jesus Christ. When Pilate says there's no fault in him, they were saying there's much fault in him. Crucify him. They had the word. He he knew nothing, but he knew there's no fault in this man. Both Pilate, who represents the world and religious leaders, along with other Jews there representing the religious system. Both had the truth standing in their midst. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, was right there. The people were so close, but yet so far away. How does this apply to us today? Well, this is, by and large, the American church and the American gospel. The world cannot find fault in Jesus Christ, yet rejects Jesus Christ. Anyone you evangelize and talk to about Jesus Christ, they can say whatever they want, and they will, but they can find no fault in Him because there is no fault in Him. 
Much of professing Christianity is a man-made religious system that is far from Jesus Christ, doing church apart from Jesus Christ. And if that has ever take place here, let God deal with us as he will. Gracefully and mercifully. Hopefully. He calls people to enter through the narrow gate in order to gain entrance into his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world, and his kingdom is nothing like any kingdom of this world. Being a humble servant, selfless, denying self, taking up one's cross, and following Jesus are some evidences that you're living in and you're, you're residing in and you're walking in the kingdom of God. You're prideful, selfish, won't deny self, won't take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. Don't call yourself a Christian. Call yourself one who needs to repent and trust in Christ. Many professing Christians think they are in the kingdom, but are not. Pilate could find no fault in Jesus because there's no fault in Jesus. He's the sinless Savior who came to save sinners from their sin. No one of this world can find fault in him. Never have and never will. What is truth? It's a good question. Word of God is truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. Let's get some heart searching and applications for us. What are we doing with the truth that we have and we say we believe? 2024. What am I doing with the truth? Am I renewing my mind in the truth? Is the truth informing my life and my decisions each and every day? Are we obeying the truth? Or do we believe the garbage of the world, your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, whatever it is? No, there's one truth. The truth. As Christians, as we consider 2024, let us embrace something that Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Never look back. Never waste your time in the present. Never waste your energy. Forget the past and rejoice in the fact that you are what you are by the grace of God and that in the divine alchemy of his marvelous grace, you may yet have the greatest surprise of your life and existence and find that even in your case, it will come to pass that the last shall be first. Praise God for the fact, Christian, that you are what you are and that you are in the kingdom. Let us indeed live like it, for we are not of this world. Our Savior is not of this world. Let us pray.
Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace that you have shown us. Thank you that the invitation is open to all who would enter into your kingdom by entering through the narrow gate, by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls, by putting their faith in the crucified one who rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended on high. God, thank you that you have got us through. You have held us through another year. 2023, on to 2024. Let us ask that question that I've asked many times, Francis Schaeffer's question, how then must I live? In light of who you are, Christ, let us serve our King. It's in Jesus' name.